Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Uh, Good to talk again. Lots of interesting data coming out of Ireland this week. Um, I'll just run through it very quickly to update listeners on this conundrum we've been discussing about the Irish economy in recent times, while a lot of global economic and financial indicators have been moving in the wrong direction. Um, Irish economic data releases continue to be strong, and that indeed has been the case this week. Um, We got export numbers for March, which showed that in the first quarter of the year, our merchandise exports were up by 29.5%, with exports to Great Britain, despite Brexit, up by 26.2%, Northern Ireland up by 48.7%, and to the European Union up by 32.7%. So Ireland's trade performance continues to be really, really strong, um, notwithstanding some of the challenges we're seeing coming through um, in the global economy. Um, we also today got employment data for the first quarter of this year, um, and it showed that in the year to March, we created over 275,000 new jobs. There's now 2.505 million people in employment in the economy, which is the highest level we've ever had working here. And the employment rate for those aged between 15 and 64 is 72.8%, which is close to a record high. And the unemployment rate is down at 4.8%. So very, very strong data. Um, Late last week, and we didn't get to discuss it in our last pod, 
But late last week, um, we got wholesale price data from the Central Statistics Office. That shows us the price, the factory good prices. So in other words, you know, in the construction industry, for example, as cement, timber, etc., comes out of the factory, what builders are paying for those materials. And if, in relation to the construction sector, it showed a pretty stark picture. Um, overall, construction inflation up by 18.2%, cement 14.6%, precast concrete, which is an important ingredient for construction activity, the price up by 21.6%, rough timber up by 28.5%, and other timber then that's used for doors, windows, etc., up by over 49%, uh, structural steel up by over 51%, and plumbing materials up by 26%. And why this is all very, very important is because it shows the impact that global supply chain developments resulting from uh, the pandemic and from the Ukraine situation, that it's showing the sort of impact that's having on raw material prices. And for the construction sector, the challenge, of course, is um, how the industry can continue to deliver housing um, with this sort of these sorts of cost pressures building through the system. So this is creating all sorts of problems for uh, the construction industry. And of course, um, you would logically expect that these price increases will feed into the ultimate price of the house. So ironically, you could find a situation where um, house price, uh, the, the housing act, the housing market is starting to lose some momentum, uh, but at the same time, prices remain quite strong. So it's it's an unusual situation. And I think it mirrors what's happening in the United States at the moment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because one of the things that's happened very recently in the US is that activity, in other words, sales, um, as well as the building of new houses, has come down quite sharply. Activity rates in US housing we think as a result of the rises in interest rates and in particular, of course, the rises in US mortgage rates following on from what the Federal Reserve has been doing to combat inflation is finally having an impact on the super sore away US housing market. Because as we say often on this podcast, the certainly the house price issue that Ireland faces is common to a lot of countries, not least the United States. One of the more intriguing aspects about the US housing debate is that um, I've done a trawl of various forecasting agencies for what people who purport to be experts in this area think about the outlook for house prices, given the fact that activity is clearly responding to higher mortgage rates at the moment. And it's almost uniform. Everybody seems to think that US house prices can't fall which raises some alarm bells for people like us, Jim, because we remember people saying like, saying exactly that going into the financial crisis of 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, there are reasons, good reasons, or at least one good reason for why house prices might not be so vulnerable this time around. And that's because, again, I think this is a similarity with Ireland. It's certainly true in the UK as well. There are more mortgages at fixed rates. So the higher mortgage rate is not having the broad systemic impact that it would otherwise have had a decade or so ago. But that said, I have my doubts that if the US housing market does slow down a lot, the fact that first-time buyers are able to afford far less than they were 
able to before, and the first-time buyer is always a key component of any housing market, their costs have gone up a lot because mortgage rates have gone up. They haven't been able to fix their mortgage because they didn't have one. So I don't think that the US housing market is as invulnerable to a slowdown as perhaps some forecasters seem to think. Um, the second reason for thinking that house prices might come down in the United States is just gravity. Um, again, in keeping with other, particularly English-speaking countries, US house prices have gone off to the moon recently, the most astonishing increase over the last couple of years. So I think they're vulnerable on a couple of counts. And the one thing I'd say to you, Jim, is that we often say when what happens across the Atlantic often crosses the Atlantic. And if US housing is starting to respond, as I think it is, to higher interest and mortgage rates, um, we've noted before that Canada is behaving similarly. The super soar away house price market of places like Toronto um, are starting to show signs of weakness after years of crazy growth. I have a feeling that it might not be too too long before these things begin to impact here in the UK, but also in, in Ireland as well. It's just, it's just a hunch that I have. I'm not being a house price forecaster here. But in keeping with something else that you said about the way in which things, some things seem to be on the turn, you mentioned in your preamble about how strong the Irish economy seems to be across a whole range of metrics at the moment, right up until March. Um, that's true of the world economy as a whole, um, particularly when you look at trade. And trade, of course, is, is, is quintessentially important for the small open economy that is Ireland. And you mentioned trade statistics being very good. And... Contrary to what's going on in Davos at the moment, where all the, the great and the good of the world, I'm not there, by the way, are talking, are talking about deglobalization, as indeed a lot of um, think tanks and talking heads are, uh, the, the trade data is not saying that, um, at least not up until March, interestingly. When you look at data coming out of the World Trading Organization and other people who look at global trade flows, this great deglobalization right up until the Russian invasion of Ukraine was apparent more in the talk than in the data. But of course, since the Ukraine war, um, there are hints that global trade and indeed global growth. So this is sort of March onwards in the high frequency data, very tentative that it is, is suggesting that there is a slowdown. So I think that's consistent with what you're saying, the super soaraway Irish open economy doing fantastically well for all sorts of external trade reasons, but also some great domestic factors. I think the external side might be more of a headwind than a tailwind for the Irish economy going forward. At least those are the hints in the, in the data. So uh, I think we, should, we need to be on the watch for maybe some turning points in the numbers. But well done, Ireland. You're doing very well, aren't you? Yeah, it continues to be a pretty decent economic story. And uh... We have more up-to-date data, for example, from the Exchequer returns to the end of April and we get the end of May next week. Uh, they are continuing to show strong tax revenue buoyancy, which is always a positive sign for economic activity. Uh, but the question we've discussed and we've posed numerous times over recent weeks is uh, the extent to which the Irish economy can fly in the face of these global pressures. On the interest rate front, um, I know today, that the Russian central bank has cut its interest rates by 300 basis points to 11%. And that flies in the face of what virtually every other central banker in the world is at at the moment. Uh, there is certainly a strong indication um, that US rates are going to continue to rise and probably more aggressively 
because the minutes of the last meeting show that there is certainly a very negative view on inflation around the Federal Reserve's table and there is an inclination to push interest rates up even more aggressively than we've seen over the last few months. Uh, moving to Europe, it seems clear now that the European Central Bank is going to increase interest rates in July. Uh, the question remains, is it going to be a quarter of 1% or a half of 1%? And a lot of people are speculating about an interest rate increase of a half percent at this juncture. That wouldn't be consistent with the sort of gradualist approach that um, the ECB president uh, typically has towards interest rates and life in general. Uh, but there is certainly a building expectation in markets that you could see a half of 1%. And, and the, the key rate that we're looking at here is the ECB's deposit rate, which currently stands at 0.5%. And it has been negative since 2014. So a half percent increase would bring that up to uh, zero. And um, then over the coming months, you would expect to see that go into um, reasonably significant positive territory. So from an Irish housing market point of view, and indeed um, from a European housing market point of view and a US housing market point of view, um, it will be interesting to see what impact this is going to have on house price inflation. Here in Ireland, uh, we continue to see really strong demand in the housing market. Um, we've also seen a significant move towards fixing mortgages over the last year or two, uh, which is a very sensible thing to have done over that period, given how low government bond yields are. So perhaps the Irish housing market, um, in terms of its stability, is relatively immune from higher interest rates. However, for people coming into the mortgage market, either first-time buyers or second-time buyers, uh, rising interest rates will clearly dampen their order somewhat in terms of the price they're prepared to pay. So all logic would certainly suggest that we are going to see some heat coming out of the Irish housing market over the next 12 months. But I go back to the point I made earlier on um, about the increased cost of delivering new housing at the moment, you know, rising very, very strongly. So there's a, a, a lot of uncertainty still there, but I think um, we can be pretty clear at this stage that the interest rate environment um, is only going in one direction for the foreseeable future. And um, I, I guess looking at the United States, um, the, the ongoing strength of the economy um, would suggest that the Federal Reserve will remain um, pretty bearish on the interest rate front. Today, we got the weekly initial jobless claims. That's the number of people signing on as jobless. Um, it fell to the lowest level since pre-COVID in 2019. And back in 2019, um, that level of um, initial jobless claims was consistent with an incredibly strong US labour market. So um, despite some signs of slowdown in parts of the economy, you know, the labour market remains very tight, as is the case in this country. And I think more than anything else, uh, that will be key in driving central bank action on the interest rate front for the foreseeable future. Yeah, one of the interesting things for me about the States and the contrast that we paint with continental Europe is where Ireland sits between the two. The inflation story in the States is very much one of an overheated economy because of the successive 
we now think overstimulus fiscal packages, particularly the 1.9 trillion Biden uh, stimulus package. And there's a fascinating interview between the ex-chief economist of the IMF, a guy called Olivier Blanchard, and Martin Wolf in today's FT about all of this. And Blanchard is intellectually so honest about he got it right in terms of his inflation forecast for the states for the wrong reasons, in that he thought that when the stimulus, Biden's 1.9 trillion stimulus, came on top of all the previous stimuli, um, that there would be a classic old-fashioned wage price spiral, but the, the inflation would start in the labour market. And he's honest enough to, to notice that what has actually happened in the States is that the inflation came from the goods market, and it's only just recently started to show signs of turning up in the labour market. So he got the inflation forecast right, but he got the drivers of inflation wrong. And it couldn't be more different in Europe, Jim, because in Europe, it's still the case that most of the inflation Yes, there's a little bit of supply chain goods price inflation, obviously, in certain sectors. But in continental Europe, it's still very much about food and energy. The labour market is still reasonably well behaved. And where there are price pressures, they are about supply chain pressures that ultimately A, should work themselves through. I know we keep saying that, but that's what a supply chain issue is. It's something that by its very nature is temporary. They're not, we didn't have the big demand side stimulus in continental Europe that uh, we experienced in the United States. So inf the inflation problem, if anything, is less. The, the likelihood of it being permanent is definitely less. So if the European Central Bank is being bounced into an aggressive monetary tightening, and we still don't know whether that's true or not, but it's looking more true as a result of the rhetoric that we've seen from Christine Lagarde and other ECB council members about whether or not it's going to be 50 basis points and how much they're going to have to do, how quickly they'll have to get back to neutral interest rates, sounding very Fed-like in their way. Um, I think that it could be a classic policy mistake because I do think that uh, the inflation problem in Europe is actually of a different nature to the one that we have in the United States. But it seems to me, from what you're saying about Ireland, is that Ireland's inflation problem is more US-like than it is European-like. Is that a fair description, do you think? Uh, I think it probably is, Chris. There is quite a strong level of demand in the economy. Uh, there are also you know, significant supply-side difficulties that are pushing prices up. Um, but if, if you look at the European situation, and sorry, before I go on to the European situation, you could certainly say in Ireland that, um, you know, the economy is probably, um, in terms of demand, somewhat on the overly strong side. Whereas if you look at Europe, um, definitely there are a few indications that domestic demand is significantly above potential. So the the question, of course, is, you know, what represents a neutral level of interest rates in the Eurozone economy? And just to explain a neutral level of interest rates in a non-technical sense is where an economy is neither overheating or being held back. And um, I think the consensus would be that a neutral level of official interest rates for the euro area is around 2%. Okay, and, and, I, and I think people who are borrowing here in Ireland um, they should probably factor in the possibility that over the next couple of years, um, perhaps even more quickly, European interest rates could go to around 2%. It is difficult to see the European Central Bank taking rates significantly above that level because that would definitely 
uh, push demand well below potential and engineer a significant recession. And um, despite the inflation problems in the euro area, I certainly cannot see the basis for pushing the eurozone economy into into a recessionary situation at this juncture. But what if the US economy goes into recession now? What if it started its recession? It, it had a negative rate of growth in the first quarter, for example. Um, admittedly, that was mostly trade-related. The domestic economy was still quite strong. But what if over the next year or two we get the US having it, uh, either because the Fed's overdone it on the stimulus or the negative um, real income consequences of higher energy and food prices prompts consumers and businesses to retrench to the point where we get a US and maybe some other economies, recession. Because um, it looks to me from the high-frequency data in the UK that there couldn't be a starker difference between the UK and Ireland. The UK economy is grinding to a halt very, very rapidly. It's an interesting contrast. And um, Ireland can't be immune from those forces, surely. Uh, no, no, it can't, Chris. But I, I would think from the perspective of the Bank of England, particularly from the Federal Reserve, um, that killing off inflation expectations would necessitate both economies being in technical recession for a period of at least six months. And from an Irish economy perspective, um, I think, uh, given the nature of our economy, we could actually live with a recession in both of those economies without doing undue damage to our economy. Um, The Eurozone economy going into a recessionary situation uh, would, I think, be more problematic for us but um, I, I, I kind of think that the Irish economy can continue to perform quite strongly, uh, notwithstanding uh, the global situation. Of course, that would all change if we got the global economy and the major parts of it, the States, China, Europe, um, and indeed the United Kingdom going into significant recession. But at the moment, I'd remain reasonably comfortable that Ireland can continue to trundle through without significant economic pain. But, uh, you know, there is so much uncertainty out there, as we've often discussed, and um, it's very difficult to be definitive about what the world is going to look like over the next 12 months because the Ukraine situation uh, continues to escalate. And we've spoken numerous times about one of the big stories now coming through, which is on the food price side. Um, and if if we got a significant bout of food price inflation here, well, I think that would then start to pose uh, a very significant challenge for the Irish economy. So uh, a lot of uncertainty, and I, I hope we're not confusing our listeners with this sort of analysis. But, um, you know, one really is being a two-handed economist in the current environment. There's just so much out there. Um, that we really don't understand and that we really cannot forecast with any level of certainty where it's going to go. The podcast is called The Other Hand, after all, Jim, with with, with good reason. But I, I would just reiterate the in really stark contrast between what you've been saying about Ireland and what the short-term data is saying about the UK economy. The The Irish economy going great guns, UK economy is... By all accounts, and many commentators, not just me, are saying this, looks as if it's screeching to a halt. A whole host of factors have contributed to that. The the higher energy costs, higher food prices, biting into people's incomes, of course. Um, the, The interesting thing, though, is that the consumer here seems to be very, very pessimistic. Consumer confidence readings in, in, in the UK, notwithstanding the strong labour market, 
are at lowest levels ever recorded but since one particular series began in the early 1970s. So consum consumer sentiment on one measure is actually worse than it was during the energy crises of the 1970s. I think the political situation in the UK yeah. must be a contributing fa factor as well. I was just to going honest. to ask you that, Chris. Um, given the political bucket shop that the UK is at the moment, and um, I know you tend to get a lot of criticism from some people on this podcast who listen to this podcast in terms of just how biased you are against um, Boris Johnson. Um, I mean, anybody that had, that would have had any doubts about the guy, those doubts should certainly have been um, allayed over the last few days because, you know, what, what the Sue Gray report has just re revealed the most incredible political arrogance, stupidity, whatever word you want to use to describe it, that probably the UK has ever seen. And is how is much being spoken about it over there? Are people concerned about it? Or is this just people continuing to laugh off Boris the Clown? Well, all of the above, really, Jim. It depends on where you start from. We do live in an era, one of the peculiarities of our age is that very few people change their minds about anything these days, and particularly things political. So whatever tribe you start in, you, you stay in that same tribe, and despite whatever evidence Sue Gray or anybody else comes up with to point out the error of your previous views or the fact that you belong to the wrong tribe, it doesn't seem to impact on what people think. That said, Johnson's popularity ratings are have plummeted, are plummeting. There are many Conservative MPs who despair over what is happening quietly, uh, one unnamed minister said to a journalist today um, that if, if there was a general election today, you know, we'd have the shit kicked out of us. That was a quote, apparently, um, from an unnamed minister. Uh, there is a belief amongst the Conservative Party that if they just hang on for a couple of years, people will forget about all of this. I have my doubts. I think people have much longer memories than this. I think one of the things from the one of the many things from the Sue Gray report, and we could talk about that all day is that this bunch of elitist, oh, I could start swearing now, but the, the, these people that run the country, from Boris Johnson to the senior civil servants to the senior advisors that he has working with him in 10 Downing Street, the way in which they treated security guards and cleaning staff revealed a lot about them, I think. I think the way you treat people um, of all from all walks of life, not just people who are on minimum wage type jobs, but the way you treat people says an awful lot about you as a person and the arrogance, contempt and just awfulness with which these people clearly treated the people who were trying to control the gatherings, the security staff and clean up after them. Because it sounded like, frankly, the sort of thing I remember from my student days or, or teenage house parties. There was vomit, um, there was wine spilt up the walls and over the photocopying piles of paper. Uh, there was a fist fight. Uh, it was an extraordinary range of things and in many ways I think Sue Gray pulled her punches I don't I think she could have been much harder hitting and it's important to remember that it wasn't an independent review of Boris Johnson's actions Sue Gray works for Mr Johnson and it was a, a review commissioned by him so the refrain is um, there weren't any parties but if there were we didn't know that they were parties at the time we're sorry it's time to move on um, it, it doesn't wash. It's not true. And um, what what can I say, Jim? The, the, you know, as a Brit, I'm, I'd, I'd love to be able to argue with you about your rather 
strong description of, of my country and the way it is being run at the moment, but it's very hard to disagree. Um, but in terms of how people actually feel about it, um, most people I know, and that's the bubble I existing, are appalled by what's going on. We've got two by-elections coming up next month, which are both um, as well safe Tory seats. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that. Um, and it will be very interesting to see if there's any pushback for Johnson, should he lose either or both of those seats. But frankly, at the moment, despite everybody knowing exactly the sort of man that he is, um, he can't open his mouth without lying. He's not interested in policy at all. The only thing he's interested in is giving money away. Hence, we had Rishi Sunak's 15 billion giveaway mini budget today, where um, in a big U-turn, they put a 25% windfall tax on excess profits from uh, certain energy companies, and it's going to be distributed to uh, individual households in a way that the Labour Party has been asking for. So they've done the classic government trick of adopting the opposition's policies. But it's very important, very, very important to realise that this is a policy-free government from a forward-thinking, strategic point of view. All they do is react. Anything that they come up with is a reaction to events. There is nothing being thought about in advance. There is no strategy. The entire government machine is devoted to reacting to events and when those events transpire, making sure that they get the best possible headlines in the tabloid newspapers and newspapers like the Daily Telegraph. That's it. That's the government that we've got. So cr- the Tories... Yeah. Go on, Jim. So I was Go just on, going Jim. to ask you, did you see the Netflix series Anatomy of a Scandal? I did. Yeah. Yes. I mean, is that representative of these people? In a way, yes. I, I, don't know where, I don't know any of these people individually, so I don't know if the levels of cynicism that were displayed in that um, series are, are present. I, I would guess that for certain individuals they are. The, the way in which individuals, men and women in the Tory party, who come on the airwaves today, yesterday, and almost certainly tomorrow, to, to frankly debase themselves defending Johnson, coming out with utter gibberish to interviewers, interviewers who by the day grow more incredulous with their... Uh, stance towards these politicians and more direct with their questioning. There's a fantastic clip available on social media. It's worth looking up for anybody who is interested in the way political journalism has gone in recent days in the UK. Sam Coates of Sky News, and I know Sky News is available in Ireland, um, standing in 10 Downing Street, shouting questions from across the street to incoming and outgoing members of the Cabinet. And they're very direct, very, very dare I say, rude questions um, about the government's lying, about the government's arrogance and about the government's covering up of all of the events that Sue Gray has been talking about. It's quite a remarkable piece of journalism, actually, and I, and I think it's symptomatic of the times that we're living in here. But going back to what I said earlier on, the, um, the political, I don't know, whatever, whatever name you like to call it, whatever is going on in Westminster does have an impact on the wider country. It does have an impact on the economy, I think. Um, and I think that it's not good. It doesn't help those confidence measures, for sure. So to the extent that it does have an impact, and we always need to remind ourselves, us political anoraks, that not that many people out there are as interested in politics as we are. Um, but to the extent that it does have an impact, this, these are issues that I think have cut through, to use that phrase, for the public. And, and may account, in a small way, for the difference in performance of the economy 
of between Britain and Ireland. And Chris, um, casting aside your obvious prejudice, uh, do you think Kirsch Starmer offers anything? Um, yes, I do. Um, and I'm not going to cast aside my prejudices, Jim, because this is my podcast, or at least half of it is. And um, I can be as prejudiced as I like. And that's the, that's the beauty of free speech. Long, long may it continue. Um, Keir Star- the biggest criticism that is labelled at Keir Starmer is that he is a charisma-free zone. And um, I don't know whether you've noticed the results of the Australian election. The same criticism is being applied to the winner of that election, which was a complete surprise, of course. And the Boris Johnson-type Prime Minister, who's being booted out by the electorate, has been replaced by somebody who has been described by the Australian media as a charisma-free zone. And what's happened in Australia is that Australian people, enough of them, got fed up with these antics, with these these populist um, antics of of, of Johnsonian-type politicians, particularly their Prime Minister. And and I think that's a... I would say this, wouldn't I? I think that's a warning for uh, Mr Johnson, that if he... Um, enough people can be persuaded to leave their tribes that if enough conservatives, particularly in the south of the country, I think is, is where, the, where the, the rubber will hit the road on this one. And it's suburban voters, middle class, people who are reasonably well off, but have their you know, reasonably liberal sensibilities offended by all of this. I think that is a definite constituency in the UK that is thinking very seriously about not voting Conservative next time around. At least I hope they are. So traditional Labour strongholds in the North that voted for the Tories the last time, uh, the Tories are likely to hold on to those sorts of seats, yeah? Um, The strategy of the Conservative Party of Boris Johnson will be to replay the Brexit referendum. That's why he. That's why he's replaying all the stuff with you guys about the Northern Ireland Protocols because it keeps Brexit salient. It keeps Brexit at the forefront of people's minds, whereas most people in the UK, I think, actually want to forget about it and realise just how complete and utter disaster Brexit has been for all, many different aspects of British life, not least the economy, but also social life as well. Uh, that um, if they can keep the Brexit drum beating that they will keep those votes that uh, Jeremy Corbyn managed to turn off so so much last time. Um, that's a strategy that might work. The pollsters suggest that it could. But even there, I, I suspect that they will, if the election was held today, a lot of those so-called red wall seats that went to the Conservatives, some would stay, but I think they'd lose some as well today. But what do I know? I'm, I, you know, forecasting general elections or forecasting exchange rates, which is easiest. Okay. Listen, Chris, um, we call it a day there. I hope all is good in France. Um, Here in Dublin, uh, nothing much changes. Um, I I won't be travelling to any Waterford hurling matches over the next few weekends, indeed for the next 12 months. You've given my dirty secret away. I did say earlier in the podcast, here in the UK, but of course I'm actually sitting in France. (laughs) Indeed, uh, Chris. Had to be revealed. I I have a a global perspective. Absolutely. Uh, You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify 
and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 